This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Well, good morning. Uh, my, as just mentioned, my name is Michael Provetera. I'm one of the pastors here. Kids, you are, uh, oh yeah, kids, go ahead and get head to your classes. You are dismissed at this point. Um, as Josh mentioned, this is my, my last Sunday for a while. I will be coming back. Uh, thank you to the session for approving this, and thank you to all, all of you for putting up with me for seven years. So it's been a blessing to be here. Um, I'm going to read, actually, from Acts 11 in English, because uh, I want to get into it a little bit more this morning. Um, but we are continuing through our, our series through the book of Acts, and we've been looking at the cross-cultural uh, mission of the church. So let me, let me, if you have a Bible in your, your rows, you can read along. It's page 920. Let me read from Acts chapter 11. Um, and then I'm also going to read from Acts 13, verses 1 to 3. So this is 1926, 13 to 1, 3. All right, so Luke writes, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. And then skipping down to chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while they worshiped in the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for your word. Father, we uh, ask that you would speak to us by your spirit and show us the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his mighty name. Amen. So Acts chapter 11, um, what is going on in this? I want to, I well, first, to kind of the context and the situation. We're kind of jumping into the middle of the story and an important pivotal point in the book of Acts. So first of all, we want to look at what is going on in this passage today. Well, we, we see in verse 19, the church has been scattered. Christians were fleeing persecution in Jerusalem and traveling to uh, Lebanon, which is, or Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, and Syria, specifically the city of Antioch. And as we'll see, uh, the scattering of the early Christians is actually part of God's plan. If you read the book of Acts, things take off from this point, if you can keep reading. Now, Antioch itself was a city of about 500,000 people, founded in 300 B.C. by one of Alexander the Great's generals. And it became known in the ancient world as Antioch the Beautiful. It was a well-known city, and it was also a diverse city. Um, its population, as best as we can tell, were, were made up of, of Jews and Greeks and Latins and Indians and Persians and even people from China, the ancient accounts tell us. And so the early Christians come to Antioch. They're fleeing persecution. Um, and 
what do you do normally if you're, if you're fleeing to a new city, uh, you're, you're fleeing persecution, what's probably the first thing that you would do and you come to a diverse place? Well, most likely you would look for people like you, right? You'd look for your own people. And so that's exactly what happens. These mostly Jewish Christians go to Jewish communities, ethnically Jewish communities, and start telling them about Jesus. But then something changes. And this, this what we read today is one of the turning points in the history of the church itself. In verse 20, it says, Luke writes, Luke the apostle who wrote the gospel also wrote the book of Acts. Luke writes, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene. So Cyprus is a Mediterranean island, and Cyrene was a North African city. Uh, these were Gentile Christians, ethnically Gentile. They were, they were non-Jews, right? Uh, so there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, Hellenists, this word Hellenists simply means Gentiles or someone who's culturally Greek. These were, they, they, essentially, they went to non-Jewish folks in the city of Antioch and preached the Lord Jesus. And because of these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, what happens is that a great number of non-Jewish people embrace Christ for the first time, as far as we know, in the history of the church. Well, uh, then the church in Jerusalem hears about what's going on in Antioch, and they send a guy named Barnabas, who's a man of Jewish descent, who, who grew up in Cyprus, to try to figure out what's going on. And Barnabas arrives in Antioch, and he finds this thriving community made up of people from all sorts of backgrounds. We can assume Latins and Greeks and Africans and Jews, and possibly even given the makeup of the city that there were even Indians uh, and Chinese as well in this early church. In other words, the gospel message goes out to the city, and people were gathered from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Again, this is first century. This is 2,000 years ago. It's pretty incredible to think about it. Maybe even blow up what you think about when you picture the early church. Um, a lot of times when we picture the early church, we, we picture a lot of Middle Eastern-looking people uh, becoming Christians. But the city of Antioch is, is radically different. Last week, Josh, uh, Pastor Josh walked us through Peter's vision where God shows him what the, that the gospel was for non-Jews as well. And um, here in this chapter, we see that becoming a reality. This, this story comes right on the heels of Peter's vision and his uh, discussion and preaching the gospel to the household of Cornelius that we talked about last week. And in Acts chapter 11, Peter reports actually what happened at Cornelius' house in Acts eleven eighteen, the one verse before our, our reading starts today, and he says, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, this is, we, we don't think this is a big deal, because most of us here are of a Gentile background, unless you're 100% ethnically Jewish, but uh, most first century Jews kept themselves. Uh, most Judaism was segregated according to ethnicity, um, and, and so this is actually a pretty surprising thing, that the Messiah, that the Savior of the Jewish people, would actually come for all people. Well, Barnabas then is so jazzed about this that he goes and gets Paul, Saul, also known as Paul the Apostle, and together they support this community through teaching and instruction in the Word of God for over a year. They think this is so vital. They spend over a year in this city teaching in other words, the sign, this sign of peoples being united together under the banner of Christ is a sign of the Spirit's work. And Paul and Barnabas think it's important to support it. 
And then even just to, to, to flesh this out a little bit more, I had us read, I had us look at chapter 13. And chapter 13 seems pretty tame. Uh, if you just look at it, it's just a bunch of names of people and they commission uh, Barnabas and Saul to go out. But the names are really, really important because you have Barnabas, who was Jewish, uh, but of, from Cyprus. You have a, a man named Simeon. Uh, they call him Niger, which is the Latin word for black, right? So it's kind of a weird nickname, but essentially he was, he was probably African in origin. Um, you have Lucius, who's from Cyrene, who's North African. And you have Menaean, who was part of the Jew, Jewish ruling class. He was part of the elite. He was friends with Herod. He grew up with Herod, the Tetrarch, right? Uh, and then Saul, a Jewish former Pharisee. And this diverse leadership team serves as a launching pad for Paul's missionary work to the rest of the Roman Empire. Now, people outside the church look at this, and they think, what is going on? Because, like most times in human history and most places in the world, people tend to be tribal and keep the people like themselves. And yet, the surrounding city sees the city, this church in Antioch transcending race and ethnicity and nationality, and they don't know what to call it. It's not Judaism, certainly not paganism. Uh, it's not traditional Greco-Roman religion. Uh, it's something else. And so the, the churches, the, the followers of Jesus at this point are given another name. They are called for the first time Christians. Christianos in Greek. In other words, the people are saying, we don't know what this is. This is kind of weird. All these people are coming together, uh, but they seem to have something in common, and they're, they claim to be followers of a guy named Christ, the anointed one. So uh, let's, let's call them Christians. Perhaps the mocking name, you know, perhaps they're saying, look, look, this is crazy. These Christians worshiping a crucified man, and yet the church embraces it to the point that we are still known as Christians today, 2,000 years later. But essentially what we see in these chapters is that this is what the gospel does wherever it goes. Wherever it goes, the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus Christ creates a diverse group of people gathered around to worship at the throne of the Lamb that surprises the outside world. Now, you might find all that pretty amazing and surprising. Uh, maybe that's not your picture of the early church that you had, but... If you were actually look through the pages of the Old Testament, uh, you would see that this community in Antioch has actually been the goal from the very beginning of history. We will see in Genesis 1. Uh, Genesis 1 makes the point that all humanity is made in the image of God. There is no distinction. All human beings, male and female, are made in the image of God. All humanity, in fact, is, descends from the same parentage, from the line of Adam and Eve. And so tribalism, racial segregation, and separation are actually a result of the fall. And then after the fall, we see, again, this plan being worked out. We see a plan of redemption started with Abraham, and we read in Genesis 12:3 that God promises through Abraham that this is a quote, all the families of the earth would be blessed, right? In the very early chapters of Genesis, God promises that through the line of Abraham, not just that Abraham, your, your people will be blessed, but that all the nations will be blessed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. The hint, the hint of this, what we see in Antioch, right? And then in Exodus 19.5, God, as he gives the Ten Commandments to Israel on Mount Sinai after they've been rescued from slavery in Egypt, 
uh, he tells them that they, they, all of Israel is to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a nation set apart. Why? Because as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, they were to mediate the goodness and glory of God to the surrounding nations, to intercede for them, to be set in the middle of all the nations so that the nations would see them and say, wow, this is amazing, and come to know God. And if we keep reading, we look to see this in the prophets too. I mean, this is, these are just a few selections. This is all over the Old Testament. Isaiah 42, 6, the Lord speaks about his Messiah to come and says, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from prison those who sit in darkness. And the prophet Zechariah records these words from the Lord. This is Zechariah 2. I know I'm, I'm spinning a lot of references here. Just, just hang on, listen to the big theme. You can look it up later. Um, Zechariah chapter 2, uh, the Lord says, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And, listen here, many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And so what is happening in Antioch, in the book of Acts, is not an accident. It's not uh, a nice uh, benefit of the gospel. It is the very central action and working out of God's plan and mission from the beginning of his redemption of all people. Right? The good news of the gospel is that God has come to forgive sins and free us from death, but also that he has come to reconcile all humanity to God and to one another, to reconcile us to each other. We see this spelled out in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I'll have this up on the screen. It's a little long, but this is so pivotal. It might actually change the way you read a lot of the books of the, of the New Testament, especially Paul's letters, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, right? Think about it. Think about this passage in the lens that we've been looking at of all the nations coming to know God. Paul writes, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, that is the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, that is Jew and Gentile, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer, Gentiles, strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you were also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See it? You see it? It's there. And John the Apostle in Revelation sees this vision in heaven, what worship looks like. And currently in heaven, in the new heavens and earth, he says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. This is all over the page of Scripture. What we see working on Antioch and what we've been talking about the last few weeks is central to the mission of what God is doing in the world. And, you know, if you look around the world, you see this even. Christianity itself is, believe it or not, the world's largest religion. A lot of times we forget that, especially in the West where we see the church uh, shrinking or stagnating. Uh, There's a Pew survey released uh, a couple of weeks ago that for the first time found that uh, only less than 50% of people in America identified as being a member of a church or synagogue, right? So we see religion declining all around us, and yet, uh, all over the world, Christianity is the largest religion with 2.4 billion adherents worldwide. In other words, one out of every three people on the planet, essentially, are Christians. You throw a rock, you're probably going to hit a Christian. Don't do that. Uh, But if you were to, you would probably find a Christian somewhere nearby. And by 2050, Christianity, it is projected that uh, there will be 3 billion people who identify as Christians, right? It's a growing religion. We don't see it here around us in our areas, but worldwide, this is the truth. And there are more Christians in the global south than America, right? Nations alone, but also combined. Christianity is a global religion. It's not an American religion. It's not a white person's religion. It isn't even a Western phenomenon. Uh, Christianity itself is an Eastern religion founded by a disenfranchised community of color that has found a home in every single culture and nation in the world today. Uh, And unless you are 100% ethnically Jewish in this room this morning, each one of us is a product of cross-cultural missionary work. But What's key to remember is that this is not just a feature of the early church uh, or a feature of missionaries or, or, or whatever. This is actually meant to be a calling for the church itself, right? The church from its very beginning has always been a multi-ethnic community of people who have been, who have been united as citizens of God's kingdom. And this is still our calling as God's people. Antioch paints this picture for us of what it could look like. Churches throughout the world are called to reach all people, the whole city, not just a certain segment of the population or a certain narrow group of people who like, I don't know, motorcycles or something like that. Um, We have been blessed in this congregation with a taste of that. We have people from all over uh, in this congregation. We have many nations and languages and colors represented in this room, and that's the church's calling. Our world's Our city is a lot like Antioch. It's cosmopolitan. It is diverse. Many nations of the world are represented in our neighborhoods. And so cross-cultural ministry doesn't just happen overseas. It can actually, and we're called to have it happen right next door. And what's amazing about this even is that this is a calling for everyone. It's for average, everyday Christians. Right? Notice, if you notice, if you look at the book of Acts again, these, these men of Cyprus and Cyrene, we don't even know their names. They're not anybody special. They're not an apostle. They're not a famous prophet or a disciple. They're just ordinary Christians um, who didn't want to put anyone outside of God's love and rescue, who didn't want to leave anybody behind. They simply loved their actual neighbors. And so our calling, too, is to lean into that more to give thanks to God for the the many tribes and tongues that we have here in our congregation, to celebrate that, but to seek to grow that. 
Not for the sake of quotas or because diversity is a hot topic right now, but because from the very beginning, this is central to the church's mission and identity. So you might be asking, well, this is great. How does that happen? What are, what are the practical steps the churches need to take? Do we need to change leadership? Do we need changes in music? Do we need new programs? This is usually the things we run to when we, when we have these conversations in, in ministry circles. What, what, do we, what changes do we need to make? What do we need to do differently? Um, well, first, let's be honest. Number one, cross-cultural ministry and mission is hard. Um, especially in this country with a history of enforced segregation, whereas Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, and where churches often in the past worked intentionally to keep things that way. It's hard. It's going to be hard. And yet, thankfully, the solution isn't complicated. So how does this happen? Well, Luke lays it out for us. Look again at verse 20. What do these men of Cyprus and Cyrene do? It says they spoke to the Hellenists. They spoke. Didn't have an evangelistic program or a certain type of music or whatever. They spoke. And what do they speak? It says they preached or proclaimed the Lord Jesus. That's it. I'm not kidding. Right? That's it. It's that Simple, according to the Bible. God's word tells us it's that simple. Maybe it was partially due to the leadership of these men, but at the end of the day, the creation of a church like this in Antioch was not on them. Verse 21, it says, And the hand of the Lord was upon them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. It was God and his power that did this. The solution for the church is, like, a, a church like this, a church like Antioch, is not rooted in do more or do different. And that's not to say do nothing either. But the solution is the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. That's usually where we stop. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation. But he goes on, To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of salvation for everyone who believes. Paul tells us it's the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, which does this. And it's right here in our passage this morning. And you know, the, the, the reality is the gospel's done more in creating diverse communities throughout history than any political agenda, program, or, or, or whatever it might be. Think for a second. How did you, how did you come to get here today, no matter who you are? where you're from, what you look like. How did you get here? How did you come to give your allegiance to Christ? Was it not the message of the gospel? Does it come down to the simple fact that someone loves you enough to tell you about Jesus, to pray for you? It doesn't matter who or what you look like, right? That's the key. That's what brought you in this, this door today, is someone loves you enough to tell you about Jesus, to explain the scriptures to you. And Acts 11 shows us that it's the gospel that builds this beautiful type of community. And it's, it, it's, only, it's only created by the gospel message, the good news. So, if that's the case, what is the good news? It makes sense for us to ask that question. If, that's, if this is, do we want this? Do we want to look like a church like this? How do you get there? 
What is the good news? Well, um, let me, let me just, I just want to share with you some scriptures. Uh, we, have, we have records of what the apostles preached in the book of Acts. We have their words for us. We have what they said to people. And so let me, let me read some of this for you. This is Acts records in, in uh, Acts 2. This is the day of Pentecost. Peter says, Men of Israel, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. That's one example. Pretty simple. Another example, Peter preaching to the Gentiles in Acts 10. We read this uh, last week. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Sounds similar, doesn't it? Again, it's not, it's not, it's not hard. And this, I think, was, was so mind-blowing to me as I read this passage in Acts is that what do they do? They, they preach this. They preached the gospel. They shared Christ. And it created this community gathered around the crucified and risen Lord. To the cultured elites in Athens, Paul the Apostle writes, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There's nothing fancy about these proclamations, right? There's nothing uh, unique. Uh, there's nothing uh, flashy about it. It's simple. It's the message of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And it's the proclamation of the gospel that the scripture shows us over and over and over again, which does wonders. So for all of us, as we read about Antioch, we read, man, this, is, this looks good. This is what we want the church to be like. Well, get the gospel in your hearts and let it always be on your lips. Hold fast to the good news of Jesus. Remember, the world is plagued by sin and darkness and slavery. We see evil and suffering all around us. We see evil and hypocrisy and darkness in our own hearts. And either that's just the way it is, uh, that's the way nature is, or it's not the way it's supposed to be. And God the creator of the scriptures tells us hates this. And he has been on a mission to rescue, to set free, to transform humanity and the world. God took on our nature to heal our nature. This is the good news, that 2,000 years ago, God became one of us, that Jesus of Nazareth is the God-man who lived the perfect life for us, died the death that our sins deserve, and conquered evil, suffering, sin, and death itself. He was executed as a traitor by the powers that be, but two days later rose from the dead. Death could not hold him, and he did this 
for you. He did this for you. He did this to set you free. Your sins are forgiven. And Jesus now offers us life. He offers us hope. He offers us a community of love called the church. He is now ruling and reigning over all things and will come again to judge the living and the dead. It may not feel like it, but it's true. And he will purge the world of darkness fully and finally and make all the sad things come untrue. And death will not defeat you either. Jesus welcomes all. No matter what you look like, no matter where you've been, no matter where you're from, no matter how messed up or hopeless you feel, he welcomes all. And he is building a kingdom and a family from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Christ Jesus is for you. Christ Jesus has conquered. Christ is our only hope in a world of chaos and disease. Christ Jesus is king. And so give him your allegiance. Give him your allegiance once again today. Put your hope in him and nothing else. This is the good news. Cling to this. Let it be the news that you focus on, most of all. And let it be the words that you share with your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers. After all, the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Let's pray. Almighty Lamb of God, to whom all the nations of the world gather around your throne and say salvation belongs to you and give you honor and glory, we pray, Lord, as we read about uh, what your church looks like and looked like, we pray, Lord, more and more that the churches of our nation and the churches of the world will reflect this. Father, make the gospel central to our hearts and minds and may it always be on our lips. May all glory be to you, and we give you thanks for your kindness and your mercy to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.